Over these next, um, well, last week and the, and the following six weeks, we're going to be looking at a series on the church. I'm going to preach on the church. I've never done that before. And um, the way we're doing it is we're going to be going through the book of Revelation, the first couple of chapters where there's letters written to seven churches. Now, what we find is, is that there are seven particular locations in Asia Minor that were written to. They were real churches and real historical situations that had real um, victories and real defeats and some very real problems. And Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, by his spirit, through John, speaks to them and gives messages to these churches. But, be, but as well as them being real historical churches, the fact that there's seven is very important. Revelation is a book filled with symbolism, and seven is the number which represents completion or perfection. And so what it helps us to understand is this, is that these seven churches represent the church down the ages. So although they were individual real congregations and what was spoken to them was very, very specific for them, it's a message to the whole church. And what you tend to find is is that the church all through the ages will meet the same challenges as these particular churches. So that's why we're going to be going through this and applying it to ourselves. Now there's one particular phrase that I want to just help us with because it's in every letter to every church. And the phrase is this, we'll bring it up on the screen now. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Is that small for you at the back? That's small. Pete, we may need some help with font size as we go through, but uh, if anyone can, you can. Okay? So that says, in case you can't read it, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, you'll find that in every one of the letters to every one of the churches. So I want to just give you a little bit of history into this phrase and help you understand why it's repeated and what it means. So we will do that. Now, the first time that we, the first time that we see it is in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, so this should come up on the screen now, on the, onto the next slide. We've got three different slides where we see it used three different times. And I'll just help you, th- so you understand, why do they keep using this phrase? Is it, what's the meaning? So you first find it in Isaiah. And Isaiah says this, And he, that's God, said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then you find something similar in Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, but when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. And then we go to Mark and now it's Jesus. And Jesus says this, And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you it's been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything's in parables. So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and indeed may hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. It's quoting the Isaiah, the first one we saw there. Now there's two things I need to say about this particular phrase to help you understand it. The first one is this, is that it's always used either just after or just before symbolic or parabolic teaching. So teaching heavy with symbols or teaching that's in parables. And the reason why is this. It's on the one hand to highlight the people that are spiritual, the people that have got a heart open to God, the people that are God's people, they understand it. It highlights the fact that they are God's people and they understand spiritual things. Because the language of the Spirit is very symbolic. You find that through dreams, visions and everything through the Bible. But what it also highlights is those who are around the message but actually have no understanding spiritually 
and for them it just exposes their blindness. And so really, it's the, way that, the reason why this phrase is used, it's used and it's God's way of saying, this message is going to come to a big group of people, there will be some in the group that understand it. And it's a, it's a sign to them that there's some spiritual life, some spiritual activity, they get it. And then there'll be others in the group that just don't get it. it And it just increases and highlights their blindness. So in a sense, it's like a judgment almost on them. And so it's a sobering phrase. So when Jesus uses it to the church, what he's saying is this. He's saying, look, I'm speaking to the congregation. There's some of you here that know me. There's some of you here, you're in the church, but you're, you're not really the church. You're around, but you're not really alive to me. And so it kind of, it, it, it's, it's a way of separating who's, who's, who's in with God, who knows God. And who, they might have some really religious trappings and, you know, may sing some songs and get involved, but actually they don't know God. So it separates that. The second thing is this. In every setting, including this one to the churches, there's struggle with idolatry. The people are struggling to really com- commit themselves to the one true living God, but in one way or another they are getting into all different kinds of idolatry. It's the context in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, um, and definitely in Revelation. Five out of the seven churches have compromised in idolatry. The other two are under pressure to. So why is this phrase used? Here's why it's used. Throughout the Bible, what we are let in on is that those who worship idols become like them. And the way idols are described in the Bible is this, because often they were statues, people would make them of an animal or of a person or something like this, and they would bow down and worship. And the prophet says this, they have eyes, but they don't see the idols. They have ears, but they don't hear. And the message is this, if you worship idols, you become like them. You'll be deaf to God. Now for us, the idolatry is slightly different in the sense we live in the West, there's not... There's not uh, an abundance of actual idols in terms of figures that people worship, people that, have been, that have been made in that sense. But there's pl- plenty of idolatry, and we'll look at that at the end by way of application. But that's, that's really what this phrase is about. It's about exposing, really, who here understands and has got sensitivity to God, who's gone hard, who's gone dull. And also it's about idolatry. If you worship idols, you become like them. You'll become deaf to God. You won't hear what he's saying. So just so you understand now, that's what this phrase means. I hope that's helpful. Okay, last week we looked at the church in Ephesus. And really what we saw that week, last week, was that the church is called to be a witnessing lampstand. It's a lampstand and it shines out and that speaks of the fact it's a witness. It's not, it's not to hide itself under a bucket and, or under a bed, but it shines out with the, with the good news of Jesus Christ and with Christ's likeness. And really that church had to conquer lovelessness, coldness. They'd gotten cold in their heart to Jesus and as a result they no longer shone out with the good news. They kept it quiet, they kept it to themselves. And it was very sobering and um, um, the, the, the computer crashed when I preached it in the morning. The computer crashed when I preached it in the evening. So <laughs> I've got to preach it in the attic in the next couple of weeks and we'll get it online. So if you weren't around, um, it's worth listening to. It's a strong message to the church in Ephesus. And um, what we're going to read today is to, to the church in Smyrna. We're going to read that in just a second. And really, just to say in the, at the start, really, the church, the church really, as we looked at, is a witness in lampstand last week. The church we see this week is um, the church is called to be a faithful bride. A faithful bride, with eyes only for her groom. Not flirtatious, adulterous eyes looking to worship other things. And the, this church in Smyrna is called to overcome fear of hardship and fear of death. 
So it's kind of like heavy duty stuff is where we're going today, but let's just unpack it and see where we go. We're going to start looking at Revelation um, chapter 1 verse 12, just so we can see the vision of the risen Lord Jesus that John gets to inspire us. Then we'll read the passage to the church in Smyrna. So then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the, seven ang- are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And now we're going to go to chapter 2 verse 8. It should come up on the screen for us. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write this. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay. (laughs) Now what we find is is that Jesus introduces himself to every church with a different title. And the title he uses is particularly relevant for their own situation. And so in Smyrna he says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. They are facing death. Now I don't know how many of us in this room have actually ever faced death. I'm sure in this room some of us will have. It's actually quite rare for an English person to face, to face death. We are a very safe country on the whole. And as such, we actually don't, we're not around death much either. In some cultures, when someone dies, they are laid out in the sitting room for a few days for the relatives and family to come and visit. And in England, it's all hushed away into a chapel somewhere. And we're not around death much. And so we don't even really quite know how to, how to handle it. I'm speaking as an English person to English people. There are many of you in this room that are not from England and may be from very, very different cultures. But this church is facing death. They're about to be thrown into prison, some of them. Now, in those days, when you got thrown into prison, most of the time it's because you were awaiting capital punishment, you were awaiting execution. It didn't mean, oh, go in, do your time, and you'll come out again. Go in and wait there because you're going to be killed soon. So they are living under immense pressure. We're going to look at what that was about in just a second. But I want to just bring this wonderful uh, title that Jesus uses. Listen, I'm the one who died and came to life. Jesus, before anything else, says, I've been there. I know what it's like. Jesus himself was arrested and um, the disciples fled. Why? Suddenly they were faced with death. I don't think we, any of us would know quite what we do until the moment comes. Peter, the, the disciple, was saying, you know what, Lord, I'm willing to go to prison and go to death with you. The moment comes, he panics first and cuts someone's ear off and then Jesus goes and heals him and he's like, oh, now what do I do? You know? and, then, and then he just, he loses it and ends up denying Jesus three times. The fear of the moment gets into his spirit. The other 11 disciples flee. One of them, as he's fleeing, someone lays a hold of him onto his cloak. He lets go of the cloak and runs naked. He's that scared. It's immense pressure. Suddenly, you, suddenly you're faced with death. What's going to happen? Jesus says, I know what it's like. I've been there. I've been there. 
And the beauty of, if you read the Gospels, of his arrest, of his interrogation, of all that he went through, there is not one ounce of intimidation that he, on his part. He's, when, he's, when he wants to speak, he speaks. When he, when he doesn't want to anymore, he just remains silent. He's complete. And then Pilate says to him, I've got the authority to have you killed. He says, you wouldn't have any authority unless it had been given to you from above. He just knows he's under the sovereignty of God. Isn't he wonderful? You love Jesus. And he says, listen, I know what you're facing. I'm the one who died and who came to life. I've overcome death. I've beaten death. I'm victorious over death. He's been there. He's been there. And then he says this. This phrase in every letter is there. I know. I know. I know what you're going through. We looked at this last week. We'll probably look at it every week because it's in every letter. But it's worth saying every week. He knows. Now, he particularly knows about the Smyrna situation. Why? Because he's been there. Like I said, he's faced opposition, threat, intimidation, death, and he came through victoriously. But not only that, he's there by his spirit, isn't he? He's with them. He's with them. He makes it clear in the Bible. I'm with you to the end of the age. He's there among them. He knows. He wants them to know not just his sympathy, but his empathy. It's very different, isn't it, when you have someone that you're speaking to about your problems and you know they've actually been there. Other people can say helpful things, but for someone who's actually been there, it's like, ah, you know what I'm feeling. Jesus comes down and says, I know. I know. And Jesus empathises. And you think, well, you know, why should he? I mean, often the things that go wrong for us, often we've made mistakes, we're part of the problem. Jesus wasn't. <laughs> Everything he went through was totally undeserved, and yet he still comes along, alongside and says, I know. He's such a sympathetic high priest. He's so good. So good to us. But what does he say he knows? Number one, he knows, I know your tribulation. Now, what does this word mean? It can mean two things. It can mean pressure, or perhaps a more vivid way of uh, interpreting it is crowding in. Right? So he says, I know, you, I know things are crowding in at the moment. Anyone relate to this? <laughs> it's one of those seasons where it's like, oh my goodness. Now, what I've found is this. I've found that I can be having a great time. People say, say yeah, things are going great. I'm oh. It doesn't take much. One or two negative things to happen, I'm like, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. Things are crowding in. And I think, you know, we can be a bit like that, you know. But Jesus says, I know that you feel at this point very, very pressurised. Now, there's two kinds of tribulation. There's temporary tribulation and eternal tribulation. And it's very important that we separate the two. What, how do they work? Because temporary tribulation is something that all believers go through. And it's actually necessary for them to go through it. And God gladly permits his people to go through temporary tribulation. Pressure and a sense of being crowded in. Not only this, Satan can be instrumental in it. Satan serves God in it. You've got to get your head around that. You've got to get your head around that. One of the Puritans once said that Satan is little more than a handmaid in God's kitchen. Yes, he is not to be underestimated. Yes, he is against you and hates you as he hates God. But under the sovereignty of God, he always ends up accidentally serving God's purposes. He does. He does. Let me show you an illustration uh, of this from the uh, Gospel of Luke. If you just bring it up here. Um, Sorry, next one. That's my fault. Jesus talking to Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you not very nice talk, is it? Satan's demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. This was just before Simon Peter denied Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is this, listen, there's been something going on in heaven. Satan's been in the presence of God, demanding 
this man. And really, I think, probably would have been given some sort of permission to have him because Simon was full of self-sufficient pride. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a chink in his armour that he didn't see. So Simon said, I want, so Satan said, I want this man. I'm going to sift him like wheat. God says, I'll give you permission, but I'm going to use it for good. So Jesus has interceded for Peter, and then he's saying, and, and, and then when you've turned again, when you've repented of your denial, and you've realised that you haven't got it in of yourself, and you've really learned to lean on me, then you can strengthen your brothers and be a leader of the church. You see that? It works together for the glory and the purposes of God. But Satan is absolutely involved. So this is how these things can work. So what is the purpose of tribulation? Ultimately, why, why does God permit his precious people that he's bought and purchased and he's predestined and adopted and he says, right, now you can go through loads and loads of painful pressure. Why? We're told in the Bible. Acts 14, verse 22 says this, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We all pray, don't we? God, your kingdom come! Don't we? God's like, Fine! I've got means, I've got ways of doing this. Tribulation. Pressure. So it's like, God, we want to see more power in the church, more people healed and saved, we want to see your breaking of justice where there's oppression. God says, great, okay, but I need a certain kind of people to really be able to do that through effectively. It's the people that have come through the fire. People that have been able to handle things crowding in and have remained faithful and they've walked the walk still. So the shoulders get broader and they're able to carry this stuff through. Because I tell you, if you want to see the kingdom of God advance in this city, you are going to face opposition. You are going to face backlash. So there's a preparation work that God brings in his mercy. He's good like that. So because that's the purpose, how should we rejoice the tribulation? Well, Romans 5 tells us, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. The Greek word is exactly the same for tribulation, the same word. We rejoice, knowing that tribulation produces endurance. And endurance produces character. We become more godly. And character produces hope. That means that we don't no longer put our, fix our kind of, all our eggs on what's going to happen in this life. We actually begin to say, you know what? I know there's an eternal weight of glory coming my way that's going to far outweigh this. I can do this. And hope, that kind of hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So through the tribulation, we've encountered more and more of the Holy Spirit and the love of God. We've realised even though things are hard and tough, God does still love me. In fact, I'm more aware of his love than ever. Do you know what? I'm going to live forever in his presence. And it's just like, that's what happens. When we receive tribulation and rejoice in it and don't go all silly, and start to, oh, does God still love me? Yes. God has demonstrated his love once for all in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love of God. Immovable. Unchangeable. He knows. He'll bring you through tribulation. Why? Because he wants to make you like himself. He wants to refine you. And he wants to use you. So it's great. But then there's eternal tribulation, which is very, very different. Let's read about this in Romans. Because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's talking here to judgmental Jews, um, particularly in this context, but it applies obviously to anyone who's <laughs> hard-hearted. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honour, immortality, will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, that's the gospel, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation, that's pressure, anguish, crowding in, distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This whole passage here is talking about our response to the gospel. And if you think, well, I don't need it because I'm all right. I don't need Jesus to die for me because I'm okay. You know, I don't need that blood of Jesus stuff to get into heaven. God knows I'm okay. You're going to go down that road? The Bible says you are hard-hearted. Do you not think that God himself, if there was another way to save you, if you would be good enough, would have let you do that? Do you think that really God gave his only son on a whim? Of course not. There's no other way. So if you're just kind of, oh, no, I don't need, you know, the Bible says, you know what? You're storing up for yourself eternal anguish. Eternal anguish. This is not what you want. This really is not what you want. And the pur- what's the purpose of that? It's retribution from God. It's revenge. Now, when people take revenge, it's bad. It's bad. Because it's always based on sinful anger and a sense of, well, we just felt wronged and it's always coloured by our own dodgy motives, but God's revenge is just and it's right. And if you have a problem with God's revenge, you've probably had um, a very closeted life. You've probably never been hurt real bad. Because when you get hurt real bad, maybe you see your family get massacred in front of you or something of that sort. It's then that you need to know that God is a God who will take revenge. There's no other way you can forgive. There's no other way you can just forgive those people unless you know God is God who will take revenge. That's why the Bible says, leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I'll repay. This is, very, so this, is, this is serious stuff. This is very serious stuff. Now, Jesus faced temporary tribulation in his life and Jesus tasted eternal tribulation in his death. Now you can say, how can you taste something eternal? It goes on forever by its nature. I don't understand, but what I do know is this. I think for those looking at Jesus on the cross, it was about six hours. I think for him, it's probably about six millennia. I just think what he experienced there, we will never know. I will probably search it out for eternity. But when he was utterly forsaken, see, this is, this is the Christian message, that him, the only man who ever lived, who really got it right, not in a kind of a annoying perfectionist kind of way, in a really, really perfect kind of way. He, he loved the needy. He was filled with compassion. He hated unrighteousness. He hated hypocrisy. He was totally the full, complete ticket. Resisted sin on every level. That, that he willingly went to be crucified. But the horror of it, you can look at it and think it's horrific because of what crucifixion was, and it was. But that was, that was the fraction of the horror. The horror of it was that his heavenly father not just forsook him on the cross and turned away, but that the wrath of, of the father against the sin of the world was concentrated on that one man who'd done nothing wrong. Concent- to the extent the Bible says he became sin. Him who hated sin and was perfectly righteous became sin. He tasted tribulation, anguish that you and I will never be able to imagine. And he did it so that the judgment we deserve, we could be let off from. He did it, he was a substitute. He died in our place. And in his incredible generosity, he offers his own perfect righteousness to us as a gift. That's the gospel. That is good news. So we can come, like today, 
and we can come into the presence of God as we are, without ritual, without having to wear strange clothes or do certain things. We come purely on what grounds? Just because, well, God's nice, he lets us in. No! No! We come. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made the way for us into the presence of the Father. So we come as we are, we come with reverence. It's the gospel. This is massive. So he knows their tribulation, and then he knows their poverty. They're under financial pressure. Now you think, why, why, why are they so poor? Well, here's why. G.K. Bill, that theologian I've been speaking about last week, he says this, it was almost impossible to have a share in the city's public life without also having a part in some aspect of the imperial cult. The whole of society was built around worship of the emperor. Trade guilds and other associations and societies, and if you didn't offer, to the, offer sacrifices to the emperor and call the emperor lord, then you were, you were ostracised, you were cut, well you can't be part of this, what this trade guild is about, it's built on the emperor's cult. And so they would say, well we can't, there's only one lord, his name is Jesus, we can't do that. Like fine, you're out, you're out of business. So they were losing their jobs, they were facing incredible financial pressure as they refused to, to worship Caesar. No compromise. Jesus says, you know what though? You're rich. I know your poverty. I know you're struggling to make ends meet. I know it's hard, but you know what? You're rich. You're rich. Reminds us, doesn't it, of um, let's look at some, some scriptures Jesus said. Let's look at the next one here. It's from, from Luke. It says this. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God. Or James says this, listen my beloved brothers, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love him? Now, does this mean that Christians can't be rich? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is this, if you're poor, it doesn't mean you're not blessed. Okay? Some are blessed with temporary riches. There's a massive responsibility on them to be generous and not to put their hope in those riches. Some aren't. It is not a sign of their spirituality or lack of it. Because there's teaching around that will suggest that it is. Well, you're poor. Well, you, you know, God's blessings not on you. Do not believe that. It's not true. The Bible neither exalts poverty as more spiritual or riches. It just says, listen, whatever situation you find yourself in, number one, contentment. Number two, generosity. Number three, it's about Jesus, not about how much money is in your bank account. You're rich, Jesus says to them. It's very important to understand that. And then thirdly, I know that you're being slandered, you're being blasphemed, you're being slandered by the Jews. Now what it was, the Jews really had a trouble with Christianity. They really, they didn't like it. They, it, it. And what you find throughout a lot of the New Testament, the struggle was against the unbelieving Jews. And so these Jews had really sided with the Romans and said, you know what, these Christians, they're bad news. And so the Jews were behind the Romans arresting the Christians in Smyrna. It's like a collaboration between Jew and Roman. That's really what's going on there. And, uh, and, 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 and they're th- we're about to be thrown into prison. They were being slandered, spoken against, accused of stuff. Do you know, the, the Christians in the early days were known as cannibals. Did you know that? They were accused of cannibalism. Why? Well, they eat flesh and they drink blood. See, it all been taken wrong. And this, they, 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 their teacher, Jesus, says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so they had, they had reputations as cannibals. And all this is slanders. But what does Jesus say? Matthew 5, verse 11. Let's look at this. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, falsely, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If in your workplace, campus, street, playground, people uh, revile you or ostracise you because of your beliefs and make crazy stories up, blessed are you. 
blessed are you. It's cool. All, all, is, all, all is going well. All is going well. But then he says, you know what, you're about to suffer some more. Some of you are going to be put in prison. And uh, he says this, he says the devil's going to throw you in there. Now listen, G.K. Bill says, the true saint should not be afraid of the devil's attempts to bring about compromise in the church through persecution because there are really divine tests to distinguish genuine from false believers in the church. Satan will come, Satan will accuse, Satan will attack. In it all, you are not to panic. Why? There's something of a divine test in it. There's something of, you just stand your ground, other believers around you, press through, you come through like gold. It's God's plan, it's God's will. And really, what we've got to understand is this, is that it's going to come back on the devil's head. I want to show you some beautiful parallelisms in the book of Revelation. You up for this? Okay, right. Let's go to Revelation 20, and I'll show you some lovely, lovely things. I know, I know, I know. Lots of reading. It's all good for you. It's all good for you. This is, this, is, this is one of the most dramatic passages in the Bible, so tune in. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them with those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now hold that in your mind. I want to just show you some parallels. Firstly, in Smyrna, the devil is going to throw the saints into prison. Here, the angel throws the devil into prison. Next, the Smyrnans will be in prison for 10 days, symbolising a short period. Here, the devil is in prison for a thousand years, symbolising a long period. The Smyrnans may not be released, but may well be killed. The devil, after a thousand years, will be released. The Smyrnans are called to be completely victorious. Satan is thoroughly defeated. The Smyrnans will be safe from the second death. Listen to this. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Satan, at the end, gets thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Okay? So this is a deliberate parallel here. You find it all through Revelation. This is deliberate parallels. I mean, these, how, did you, how did these guys, these theologians find them? But they're in there and they're strong. And so it appears like, oh man, we're under pressure. Satan's on us. Da, 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 da. What's going to happen? Here's what's going to happen. You're going to be victorious. You're going to overcome because he has lost. Right? And it's lifting your head to the eternal perspective where you suddenly realise, hey, do you know what? I've got bogged down in being crowded in by the pressures that have come and I started to think of it, oh, you know, all is lost, why is me? No, head up. 
There's something going on of an eternal reality here, which is, makes it very, very important that you go through this pressure and get refined so that you can be more useful in the kingdom of God and so that the place where you live can be more impacted by the kingdom of God and you're not to be intimidated by satanic attack or even the thought of satanic attack because ultimately he's defeated. God is sovereign over him. God can make every attack he brings work for his good and his glory. Let's get on with it. Yeah? Amen. Not that it's easy. That's how you make it sound easy, no. No, it's not. No one said it is. It's not easy. But it's true. That's the point. It is true. So the application for us is what? Well, these people were suffering in this way because they refused to be idolatrous. So I want to just look quickly before we finish at what are the idols that perhaps for us try and creep in. Because it's certainly not you know, the worship of the emperor, is it? Do you know what I mean? So, well, what is it? How does it work for us? Um, I think it's the idol of pleasure in our society. We're just told, we aren't we? You know, just, just enjoy yourself. That's really what it's about. Actually, it's not. The Bible says God gives us all things to richly enjoy. So, praise God. I'm not saying that we shouldn't enjoy ourselves. But that's, when it becomes your goal, it's become your God. And you've got to watch that because sometimes there, sometimes there are things God wants you to do which mean it works against short-term pleasure. Not always, but sometimes. And so you've got to be clear in your heart, really, what am I about? A.W. Tozer wrote a book called uh, The World, Playground or Battleground. I think the title says it all. <laughs> it's a battleground. And if we're going to take the ground and be all that God's called us to be, we can't just be lovers of pleasure. Enjoy the blessings of God by all means and give him the glory for it. But you can't worship pleasure. It's ever so important you don't. And we are, our, the Western culture is pleasure-based in terms of what it values. Or maybe it's money, mammon. Because when you've got money, you can do this and money speaks of freedom, money speaks of security. Really, money, money promises everything that God promises. It says, oh, I'll give it to you. Oh, come, come on, come and follow me. Come on now. It's an idol if you go down that road. It's an idol. Money is neutral in and of itself. But if your heart is gripped by it, it suddenly becomes a powerful, idolatrous force in your life. We're called to live free from the love of money because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Just out chatting with some teenagers just the other day, local teenagers, and for them it was all about money. All about money. And they would do all kinds of things. They justified why. Because they just needed some money. Why? And what it got down to was, well, I, I need those trainers. And those tracks with bombs. That was to see that, so for them it was this whole, how they looked, that it, that's a massive thing in the West, isn't it? How they looked. Even starting to hear it with my own kids, even talking about, you know, just, just talking talk to one of my children and they were just saying that they, they struggled with someone, that they struggled with someone. I said, why, why, why? They said, oh, it's bad, I don't want to say it. Like, come on, why, what is it? Say, they don't look like a cool dude. I thought, oh. I said, well, you know, what have I, have I done this? <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. But, uh, what, what, you know, what is it? But you think, it just, it, just, it just creeps in, doesn't it? It's in society. It's like it all, how you look. And you know, what, does, what does the Bible explicitly say? God looks at the heart. And yet our society is all about, now get the right thing. And it's a value system that's totally anti-kingdom. It becomes an idol. See how massive this stuff. Or power. These things can be idols. As you say no to them, you may well face tribulation, pressure, opposition, financial hardship, 
possibly losing your job, possibly losing out on promotion, you are blessed. You are blessed. The spirit of glory and of God rests on you, if that is you. Whatever you do, do not succumb, do not compromise. And buy into that which is only temporary, at the expense of that which is eternal. That would be a huge, huge mistake. I want to finish by looking at one scripture, short one, but it's a very, very important one. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20. Do you not know, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You're not your own. If you are a Christian, if you are born again, you have given your life to Christ, you are no longer your own. Now in one sense, no one is, because the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. But those whom God has redeemed and called and saved are his special treasured possession, the Bible says. You are his. And I want to urge you to stand with all the might that God will give you against idolatry. Know that Jesus knows. He's been there. He understands. He'll make his presence known to you. He'll empower you for what you need. Maybe idolatry could be another person. There's someone you just, you want to be around them and you know this relationship is going to affect my walk with God. Stand, stand firm. Please, if you need help, support, we are here. I am here. We'll stand with you. We're not going to pretend it's easy. But I want us to just keep in that place of devotion to the Lord and an understanding that we are his. We've been purchased with his blood. He's laid down his life for us and he's called us to follow him. Let's do that knowing that as we do so, we have no fear of the second death. Second death can't hurt you. That's why the, when Christians die in the New Testament, how does it refer to it? As people falling asleep. That's all it is, really. That's all it is. And hopefully over the next year or so, we'll maybe do a series a bit more on looking at our future hope and resurrection and, and just get into it. This thing, is, this was the big deal for the early Christians. They lived with this thing. It was, it was like there. I th- my fear is, is that for the church, maybe the Western church, 21st century, that it's kind of, it's over there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, future hope. By God's grace, we can bring it right to the forefront. Do you think it would change the way we live? <laughs> you know? Do you think it, I think it would change massively the way I live. So by God's grace, Father, I pray you would help us. I pray you'd help each of us, Father, to really get this. I pray for revelation. Open the eyes of our hearts by your spirit, Lord. I pray for all those who are here, Lord, who maybe have never come to know you, have never known the joy of sins forgiven, new life in Christ. I want to pray, Lord, you would even move their hearts today with faith and repentance and draw them to yourself. I pray that, Father, in Jesus' name, that, that we would walk the walk well, that we would come through pressure, that we would be refined and that we would grow and that we would give you the glory for it all. Amen.